Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lagunitas Brewing Company, challenging the status quo and crafting stories along the way. Featuring a wide range of innovative craft brews and non-alcoholic options, it's good to have friends. Learn more at Lagunitas.com. Until recently, Edmund Hong says he didn't speak out against racism because he was scared. My parents told me not to speak up because they were scared. But I'm tired of this. Listen now on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. This week, we're going to listen to some music, but we're also going to have some serious conversations. The word boogaloo has surprisingly become a topic of conversation, not just among music fans, but also among law enforcement agencies and even in the halls of Congress, and not for reasons that you would expect. It seems a loose network of white supremacist groups have adopted the term as a euphemism for a race war or other acts of violence. As improbable as that sounds, it is reality. And this week, we're going to reclaim the word boogaloo. First, we're going to explore how it is being co-opted by these groups. Then we're going to review the actual history of the music and the social conditions that led to its creation in the early 1960s. We're also going to hear how the music brought together two segments of the African diaspora, and we're going to check in with an artist who was part of the original Boogaloo movement in New York to get his take on this recent development. And of course, we're going to hear some music to remind us how it celebrates joy in life and is the antithesis of what these groups bring to our country. To set the stage, we're going to hear from NPR correspondent Hannah Allum and her report from back in January of this year explaining who the groups are, how they came to use the term, and what the word means to them. In 1965, this song by Tom and Jerio was a hit. It sold a million records. It also introduced America to a new word, boogaloo. Boogaloo emerged as a mashup of Black and Latin American influences, Some 50 years later, the word is still part of American pop culture, but with a very different meaning. It once represented a fusion of people and cultures. Now it refers to their coming apart, civil war, in some quarters, a race war. All right, so we're hot, we're live. We're talking boogaloo (laughs) tactics right now. Boogaloo. How did the word end up on the YouTube channels of armed and angry white guys? Boogaloo began as a sound and a dance. It bounced around from New York's Spanish Harlem to R&B artists in Chicago and other cities. James Brown brought it to new audiences. Boogaloo is probably one of the hardest dances in the world. I used to get dizzy doing it. Over the decades, the word came in and out of use. But it wasn't until 1984 that Boogaloo, or at least the way we think of it now, had its defining moment, thanks to a movie. Actually, the sequel to a movie about breakdancing. Electric Boogaloo, the ultimate show. We Kelly, ozone and turbo. Electric Boogaloo is breakdance too. Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, was a dud. It was so bad, it became a cult classic. The title has evolved into a meme, a sarcastic way to describe any unwanted sequel. And not just for movies. You now hear it in politics and sports. Most importantly for the spread of the meme, it took root among gamers. Hey folks, welcome back to Sparring Gaming and welcome back to Patrol Memes 2, Electric Boogaloo. 
Today, Boogaloo has seeped out of the gaming community and found fertile ground in militant fringe movements. That includes anarchists and others on the far left. But it's especially popular among right-wing militias and self-described patriot groups. In dozens of YouTube videos, they promise armed rebellion if the government tries to take their guns. A civil war, or Civil War II, Electric Boogaloo. So many people are saying that the Boogaloo is about to kick off in Virginia. When the Boogaloo happens, these are the people that you're going to have to watch out for. Do not think for one second that there aren't people that would love to see this thing to get started, that would love to see this Boogaloo start rolling. Personally, I do not want to see that. I don't want it to come to that. The same fun word, a chilling new context. And that's what makes it, I think, particularly insidious, is the use and co-opting of you know, pop culture in order to make extremist points. That's Warren Siegel of the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL just released a report about the spread of Boogaloo. With far-right violence on the rise, Siegel says, it's time to look closer at how extremists use pop culture to communicate. It helps the message spread. It helps people maybe who are um, sort of on the margins want to explore. And so it's really weaponizing language as a way to try to reach and recruit people into the movement. YouTube videos with snarky Boogaloo titles often include advice on firearms and tactics. For a subset of the far right, the fringe of the fringe, civil war isn't enough. They're spoiling for a race war. Decades later, Boogaloo is no longer about music, but about menace. A word coined by black and brown people, now used by some who envision a country without them. Hannah Alam, NPR News, Washington. Okay, let's hear a little bit of music to kick this off before we get into more conversation. The Boogaloo classic, I Like It Like That, has had a resurgence lately because of the hit by Cardi B a few years ago. The original was just recently reissued by Concord Records, the company that now owns the classic Find Your Records catalog. And let's hear a little bit before we settle into our conversation. You feet to skate, pick up your arms and make them shake. Okay, to start this off, we're going to hear from Elena Martinez. She is a co-artistic director of the Bronx Musical Heritage Center in New York. She's also a folklorist with City Lore, and she is a producer of a documentary about Boogaloo called We Like It Like That. Elena, thank you for joining Alt Latino. Hi, Felix. Lots of stuff to get to, and we appreciate you taking the time to help us sort this out. We have discussed uh, Boogaloo in the past on the show. For these purposes, we want to give a very quick overview the first question, let's talk about the origins of the music of Boogaloo itself. Now, there's sort of a mashup of the sounds of the African-American and Afro-Caribbean communities from the 1960s, correct? So, well, in the 1960s, you had um, sort of young New Yorkans who grew up listening to the Beatles, listening to James Brown, all the, the popular music of the day. Um, and also, they also would have been familiar with their parents' music, 
um, Mambo, the, the, you know, from the, the big band era, Tio Puente, Tito Rodriguez, Machito, they would have been familiar with that. But they sort of like took all these sounds together and created this new sound. And part of that comes from, you know, you're living next door to African-Americans and, and to other young people who are listening to this popular music of the day. So that just makes sense that um, you're a young person, you're going to, that's what you hear on the radio. But I think it's also it's normal for teenagers and young people to reject their parents' culture. No one, we don't want to listen to old people's music, you know, when you're 15, you don't want to listen to that. Even though now we listen to it, we're like, oh my God, this is incredible music. A lot of the young Puerto Ricans were considered New Eurekans, they're um, second and third generation. They are growing up in American culture, listening to pop music. And I think um, Puerto grounded, really growing up as Americans in a way. So they're taking all this music, all these musical influences and, and bringing them together and putting them together into, um, into a different sound. And does it also reflect a little bit of the socioeconomic policies of the time where the Afro-Caribbeans, Puerto Ricans, and African-Americans are situated in particular neighborhoods at the time? Yeah, I mean, by that time, by the 1960s, Puerto Ricans and African-Americans are definitely living side by side. I mean, even from the generations before, with this large construction of projects in the 50s, the residents of all these housing projects um, by the early 60s are African-Americans and, and Puerto Ricans. So they're living side by side. And they're growing up side by side. All these kids are going to, young people are going to hang out with each other. And I think also what's reflecting of that time, too, is that post-World War II, you get this large influx of Puerto Ricans to New York City you get a large African-American, which was a continual throughout the 20th century, um, African-Americans coming up from the South to Northern cities. You're also getting a West Indian migration. Everyone's settling in, in Harlem, East Harlem, all these places. A generation ago, their parents' generation, the Latino community was sort of exoticized, right? Hollywood had the good neighbor policy. And so there were all these films with people dancing, Mambo and Cha 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 and Rita Hayworth all dressed up. and. Puerto Ricans and Latinos were fun and, and, and exotic, so that was cool. But now Puerto Ricans are coming in mass waves after World War II in the 1950s. Between 1950 and 1960, 500,000 Puerto Ricans migrated off, left the island of Puerto Rico. Many of them settled in New York City. By the early 1960s, New York City had a bigger population of Puerto Ricans than metropolitan San Juan, and that's 20% of the island. So now, as they're migrating in mass numbers and really becoming really visible in urban centers, this is the same time that you have this like crime wave, this hysteria over the crime, juvenile gang crime and everything, and that always coincides. We leave Hollywood's good neighbor policy films, you know, Down Argentine Way and all those movies, and now we're getting into Blackboard Jungle and West Side Story, gang movies, right? So all that goes together to just create this sort of new sound that's completely different and a completely different experience of the generation before. I asked you to bring in some music. Uh, let's start with one of the tunes that you brought in. Boogaloo Blues, I think, is important because it sort of like, again, shows that sort of connection to the popular culture of the time. This sort of like, hey, what was happening at that time in the late 60s? It was flower power and hippies. And this music is sort of like embedding us in the American experience. So this is Boogaloo Blues from Johnny Colon. Thank you. 
You are listening to Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. We're talking to Elena Martinez about Boogaloo. That tune was in English. Let's talk a little bit about the language, because in addition to the different musical styles, I'm imagining that uh, the generation before the Spanish dominant coming from the island, you have people born in the United States now becoming English dominant. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of like the second and third generation experience. My father grew up, his parents were from the island. He grew up in East Harlem in the Bronx. And um, even though Spanish was his first language, he went to school and was, you know, told to speak by the nuns in English, even though he always knew it, sort of like just lost it, never taught it to his kids. I see it as sad that you feel people feel like they have to assimilate and lose things that way of their culture. But I think also we're just part of that, you're becoming part of, of, of your society. And I, and I think that's just normal for anyone to do. And also by singing in English too, you know, again, the, the people you're hanging out with, your neighbors, your, the young African-Americans or Italians, whoever it is, they can all enjoy this music as well because it's not, it's not in Spanish. So they have this other attraction to it as besides the danceability of it. Let's take a break from the music and the conversation right now. And let's listen to an interview I did with NPR correspondent Hannah Allum. We listened to her piece at the first part of the show, a report from January. And I asked her for an update about what's going on with the movement that is attempting to appropriate the name Boogaloo. Let's listen in on that. Okay, so far we've been talking about Boogaloo culturally, and now we're going to have a conversation about the extremist groups themselves. Joining us now is NPR correspondent Hannah Allum. She covers extremism and domestic terrorism for NPR News. Hannah, welcome to Alt Latino. Hi there. Okay, first of all, how did they come up with this name? Why did they choose Boogaloo? Right. Well, Boogaloo Boys, as they're called, are these heavily armed guys, and they are almost all guys, who are basically agitating for an apocalyptic war. And so they would see that as a second civil war, and so they joked about it as Civil War II Electric Boogaloo. And, you know, that comes from you know, the 1980s breakdancing sequel, uh, Break Into Electric Boogaloo. Um, you know, it's been a meme for, a, for quite a quite some time online in forums for, oh gosh, um, gun groups, gamer forums, Civil War history forums. And then it's kind of morphed into this, some call it a movement, a meme, a trend um, that's known as the Boogaloo Boys. They're very identifiable. One extremism analyst calls it a dress code because they are very easily identifiable in a crowd because they like to wear Hawaiian shirts, so these very colorful Hawaiian shirts, and they like to carry these big guns. And so, you know, there's this sort of imposing presence of guys in these colorful Hawaiian shirts, heavily armed, and looking like they're on their way to a very unusual and very dangerous luau. Go figure. Right. (laughs) Okay. Now, to to be clear, now again, the the name refers to groups that want to uh, basically want to overthrow the U.S. government. But th- there is some overlap with other hate groups, correct? Well, so it's a complicated um, trend movement, whatever we're going to call it. The idea is basically accelerationism, which is the use of violence to collapse what they see as a failed system and clear the way for a new order. And what that new order might look like, it depends on who you ask, because there is no cohesive vision, no unified ideology, no clear goals. Some Boogaloo boys are white supremacists. Some are libertarians. Some are anti-government. There are even some leftists. So it's really, it's blow up the system and you know, who knows what comes after. But the sort of use of violence to collapse what they see as a failed system is um, that's sort of the core 
um, you know, to the extent that there is sort of a unifying um, goal, that's that's it. You know, we heard your story earlier, and that was from January, and and obviously you're very busy covering extremism and domestic terrorism. But is there any news from that front, from the Boogaloo front, about those extremist groups that have co-opted that name? Sure. It's only it's only gotten bigger as a threat since uh, I started reporting on it back in January. It's now, I would say, one of the primary sort of um, homegrown extremism, domestic terrorism threats. Um, that's according to uh, law enforcement, to authorities, to extremism researchers who follow these and tra- track these movements. Yes, it's, it is emerging as a serious threat, especially as it kind of merges or tries to find a toehold in the broader protest movement that's going on. And so, you know, we've heard extremism researchers testify at congressional hearings that they're afraid of a street war, that they're afraid of this ballooning into something much more dangerous than a trend of a bunch of guys in Hawaiian shirts and guns. It is quite menacing, and we shouldn't let that kind of memes and the Hawaiian shirts and the kind of tongue-in-cheek lexicon of these guys like detract from what is actually a, a pretty serious threat. You know, as you pointed out in your report that we heard earlier, what's apparent to those who, who know the history of the music, it was an organic melding, a mashup of the African-American communities, Afro-Caribbean communities in the 60s, kind of brought those two communities together because they were already existing side by side in New York. It brought people together. It has always seemed unusual, weird, ironic, whatever the word is, that these people that are adopting this name actually want to try to separate people, separate people by race even. Oh, exactly. I mean, my first story about this new kind of use of boogaloo as a word, as an idea, was back in January. And it was a language story specifically because of that and because of the kind of racial undertones I was seeing in the movement, even how some of these guys in videos would say boogaloo, boogaloo, you know, it was clear it was beyond just like a funny meme from a breakdance movie. It's the old story of co-opting, of appropriation. It doesn't get more ironic than, you know, something that started as a sort of fusion of Afro-Latino cultures on the dance floors in Spanish Harlem. Now we see on the streets of Richmond and in other places uh, playing out where, you know, guys who use this word invoke the word boogaloo to um, to mean something totally different. The society coming apart, tearing at the seams, destroy it all, um, civil war. So, yeah, I found that evolution fascinating. And I have to say, in the middle of reporting it back in January and then following the movement since, you know, it kind of dovetailed in a weird way with what I was seeing from Latino friends a resurgence in the interest of Boogaloo the music. And so I actually, <laughs> it was, just, I had these few, this weird stretch where I'd report all day on these heavily armed Boogaloo extremists. And then I'd get off and go to my Zumba class where my Latina Zumba instructor <laughs> would play Victor Manuel, Boogaloo Supreme. And we all start to dance. And I'd think like, you know, this is weird, but I have to say I much prefer the latter kind of Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> I would think so. Yeah. But yeah, we shouldn't talk about this, this concept without talking about the appropriation and about the evolution of this word, um, both from that Afro-Latino roots of it, but also, yeah, through the breakdancing movement and through this these films that were kind of made off the back of this organic street movement and capitalized on that itself. And then sort of at every moment, there's been people cashing in on, on this word and using it for their own uh, agendas. Amazing. It's just mind-boggling. <laughs> That's where we are these days. 
Hawaiian shirts, Boogaloo. Yep. You know, 2020 never fails us, does it? (laughs) (laughs) You said it. We'll stop right there, Hannah. That's that pretty much sums it all up right there. Thank you so much, Hannah Allen, for uh, joining us here and talking about this. Thanks so much. That was NPR correspondent Hannah Allen. Elena Martinez, let me get your reaction to that. Um, It was interesting. When I first heard about this a while back, people had let me know because they were like, they knew I had worked on this Boogaloo film. And I was like, oh, they're, they're, they're appropriating this name. They're appropriating this term. Um, and my first thing was like, oh, they don't even know what it's about. They have no, they must have no concept of what Boogaloo, where it comes from. Um, because that happens so often. There's this appropriation of culture going on all the time. And usually most people, whether it's for, you know, malicious intent or not, don't, you don't usually always understand maybe where things come from. And so I was like, they can't have any idea because if a lot of those folks involved in these are white supremacists, why would they use a term that is um, coming from African-American musical forms? But And then you would have been listening to Hannah's piece and you're like okay there is a reason they they took it actually not from maybe boogaloo from the 60s but boogaloo in terms of the hip-hop dance that came from the hip-hop era still an african-american form but again sort of warping and distorting african-american culture and african-american contributions to the culture and so is it humorous is it funny for them but i guess even if it might be it's a very unfortunately very serious issue that it's being used for as as they talk about in that piece Elena Martinez, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us here on Alt Latino about this very important subject. Thank you. Okay, time for another short music break. This is a Boogaloo classic. This is called Bang Bang by the Joe Cuba Sextet and is from 1966. And now we want to bring in Jim Byers. He's the director of marketing for Arlington Cultural Affairs here in the Washington, D.C. area. But more importantly, he is the host of the long-running radio program, The Latin Flavor Classic Edition, which airs on WPFW here in Washington, D.C. He's known around the country for his vast knowledge of the Afro-Caribbean music that some call salsa and others call Latin jazz. Jim, welcome to Alt Latino. It's an honor to have you on the show. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Okay, we've heard earlier in the show about how the music united the African-American and Afro-Caribbean communities in the 1960s. What kind of influence did Boogaloo have on the music that came after that in the African-American communities? Well, it's really, it's part of an ongoing process of uh, African rhythms being reincorporated into uh, Black music uh, and urban music. 
And and really, it's, it, it goes beyond rhythm and blues. I mean, try and find, for example, a country band today that doesn't have a, a set of conga drums on stage. You look on, you know, one of the morning shows, and there's a, there's a country and western band, and they're shaking a sheck at it, on, you know, on the on the bandstand. It really goes back to the tremendous impact of of the boogaloo and Latin soul in the 1960s. It really, you know, certainly the the door was unlocked by mambo and Latin jazz, if you will, but boogaloo took it to the streets. It took it to an entirely new generation. And it, it leapt over the chasm that was uh, sort of being created, you know, with the shift from, you know, swing and, and traditional pop into rock and roll and rhythm and blues. You see the impact in Motown. So many of, of your Motown hits are essentially cha-chas performed with American set drums <laughs> and, you know, a Congo drum in the back. Okay, Jim, I've known you for a very long time, and I know that you self-identify as African-American. How and why does this music speak to you? Well, I, you know, I, I think back to um, my, my parents, really. When, when I was growing up, we didn't have a radio in the house, but we had a, a small record collection. Uh, my father is a, a former bebop musician. He was actually in uh, drummer Charlie Persip's early big band in the late 1940s as a saxophone. But he had a little collection, you know, a little Aretha Franklin, A-Star, Sarah Vaughan. Uh, but he also had Joe Cuba. And I'll, I'll never forget listening to those sounds. And even though as a child, I mean, you know, I didn't know the particulars, but I knew that it was speaking to me. I was hearing what was decidedly, you know, Latin rhythms, African rhythms. But I was also hearing the sound of doo-wop. I was hearing, you know, because a lot of the guys say in, in the Joe Cuba sextet came out of these, you know, stoop front, uh, vocal groups because that was the sound of their era when they were coming up in the early and mid 1950s and all of that blended into the sound of of boogaloo and latin soul it grabbed me immediately as a child i started collecting when i was eight largely on the basis of those recordings Twenty thousand records later <laughs> <laughs> you know as your father's interest shows it really was an organic interest in the music for someone from his generation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these connections, I mean, I know we're, we're concentrating largely on Boogaloo and Latin soul at, at this juncture, but it, it goes back so much further. I mean, you can trace it back to some of the English language mambos that the uh, Joe Cuba sextet did back in 1955 that I've got you under my skin. You know, the language changed. You know, that was before the singer-songwriter era and that was a standard, but it was clearly aimed at crossing over and clearly aimed at drawing together, you know, these traditions. You can take it back further than that. People like uh, Alberto Isnaga, a uh, legendary band leader in New York, when he first came to the States, he came to Washington, D.C. Here in Washington was playing in the pit orchestra of the Howard Theater and then moved to New York. There are deep, deep connections that go so far back. I mean, let alone Mario Balsa, uh, the musical director of the Machito Orchestra, who moved to Harlem in 1930, really specifically to play with African-American jazz bands. He had heard them on a tour back in 1928-29 and resolved to move to this country so he, he could really immerse himself in jazz and spent the next 10 years with the likes of Cab Calloway and Chick Webb before he founded the Machito Orchestra as musical director with Machito in 1941. So these connections go so, so far back. 
And, and ultimately, all of this history really reflects the common ties to Africa that both of these communities shared, right? Absolutely. We can hear it in each other. As I said, hearing it as a child at three, four years old, I didn't know, you know, <laughs> you know what the specifics of the history were, but you can feel it. And it, it's, it's, it's a way in which we, our communities talk to each other. It's been an influence and it's been a way in which we have communicated between our, our, our communities for, for decades. And after having said all of that, let me ask you, what was your first reaction when you heard about these white separatist groups using the word boogaloo to symbolize some kind of race war? Absolute disgust. It, it is antithetical to everything that I know and uh, have experienced in this music uh, as an African-American uh, who has been um, allowed, if you will, into uh, the realm of, of, of glorifying and, and and spreading its history, um, it is unconscionable that, that that they would take a name and a genre that its very essence is of bringing people together and of creating conversation and creating community and to separate it from that and use it for something that is tearing this country apart is unconscionable. Give a message for those hate groups? Stop. And, 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 a, and a, message, a message to grow up and really, you know, explore the history of this country and explore the history of this music. I've, I've personally witnessed this music change hearts and minds. And maybe the music can find a way to do that again. Jim Byers, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us. Thank you, man. It's my pleasure. And finally, we hear from an original Boogaloo artist, vocalist Joe Batan. His Afro-Filipino presence epitomized how the music brought people and cultures together. Our conversation was recorded during an intense electrical storm on my end, and it affected the clarity of his conversation. So I apologize, but I felt it was very important to include our brief conversation. Mr. Batan, thank you so much for uh, joining Alt Latino to talk about this important subject. I just have one question for you. What was your immediate reaction whenever you first heard that some of these supremacist groups were using the term boogaloo as a euphemism for some kind of race war, some kind of act of violence. What was your immediate first reaction? I, I was uh, appalled and surprised that I never heard of anything as ridiculous because boogaloo has been in existence for over 50-some years and uh, there's never been anything else associated with boogaloo besides music. If you could speak to the folks that are using this term, what would that message be? Don't use a word that we popularized many years ago for the goodness, for music, for a universal language, and uh, spill it on the tape. It has to stop. Thank you so much for listening in on this conversation, an examination of how some people in our society are attempting to pull apart our world with ill will and sometimes outright hate. This topic and this show is a reminder of music's higher calling to unite people, spread joy, and to recognize, celebrate, and honor our neighbors. We're going to end the show with Joe Batan singing his song, Freedom. You've been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras, and as always, please, please be careful out there.
This message comes from NPR sponsor NetSuite by Oracle. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution. And that's NetSuite. Learn more at netsuite.com story. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.